The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. For a second, please. We're in a cultural war, cultural war. How do you think you are talking to me like that? I resent the fact that your implication that only you are a Canadian. The culture war is back, 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 back. All right, my friends, the culture war is on. Here it is. We're back to work. It's Tuesday already, and we right uh, get into the deep end of things with the culture warriors. Scott Masson is the associate pastor at the Westminster Chapel in Toronto, and he's rejoined the Oakley Show. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, John. And Justin Trache, spokesperson for the Canadian Secular Alliance. Good morning to you, Justin. Good morning to both of you. Thank you for that. By the way, it was Friday. It seems like uh, it wasn't that long ago we were discussing this issue in a anticipation of a Supreme Court ruling, and uh, it came out and perhaps surprised many because it was a unanimous 9.0 or 9 to nothing ruling from the Supremes that uh, anyone who has HIV uh, but is deemed to be a low risk to spread the contagion, uh, in fact, has a low-load HIV status being treated by antiretroviral drugs or wears a condom, uh, doesn't have to disclose their status. Whereas back in 1998, I guess, when this was first contested, it uh, did lead to charges and convictions for (laughs) aggravated sexual assault. Failure to disclose uh, could, in fact, lead to a death sentence, as indeed it did in the case of one individual who's Uh, conviction was upheld. The other was quashed because the woman was deemed to be a low risk to pass on the contagion. Well, did the Supreme Court get it right or wrong? Scott Masson, I'll start with you. Well, I thought they got it wrong in overturning the ruling. I was surprised at the 9-0 to uh, ruling, so clearly they were uh, clear amongst themselves on the justice and overturning it. But I would have thought that uh, the, the, the mere possibility of transferring a deadly virus would be enough that uh, at least they would want to hold to the previous ruling that uh, you ought to uh, reveal to your sexual partner the possibility that they may contract the virus. That that That's all that the law stated is that there was a moral obligation to reveal that. The new lo- uh, legislation seems to me really funny. Um, that they have to have a low load of the virus. What What does that mean? It seems to me to open all sorts of legal challenges, among other things. I mean, what what constitutes a low level? Who's going to determine that? Well, what you're saying is even if the uh, chance is negligible, it's still something you have a moral obligation or duty to disclose. That's right. Uh, And so for that reason, I found it a very odd ruling, and I I couldn't understand why they would overturn the ban. And it's in accordance with the medical science as they understand it right now, but who knows if the, the virus is going to mutate and become something else. They don't know it. So to overturn the legislation seemed to me a very... Uh, hazardous uh, ruling. Well, I guess the other argument is if if the legislation had been uh, kept as it was in 1998 when uh, antiretroviral drugs had not progressed to the extent they had and uh, mitigated the the danger, let's say, or the risk, uh, that left too many people in the precarious position of being uh, charged with a rather serious charge of aggravated sexual assault and sent away for a long time. So do you think the Supreme Court got it right or wrong, Justin? Or well, which do you feel? Do you think they got it wrong? I think they got it more or less right. And I just want to stay, just want to say right off the top that I, I share the kind of intuitive um, kind of uh, gut reaction that there's something 
um, something bad about this decision, uh, although it does follow from uh, the World Health Organization's recommendations that we do look to uh, decriminalize or kind of roll back the more stringent uh, criminalization of failing to disclose. Right now, Canada actually has one of the harshest uh, legal regimes in the world, and it's a legal question. Um, I agree on a moral level that that's a, that, that that it may be wrong to fail to disclose, but we're talking about the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and Canada does or has until now treated failure to disclose as basically murder, whereas in many other countries, uh, the law provides for uh, reckless endangerment. That's how they refer to it. Actually, it was or aggravated sexual infection. It was aggravated sexual assault. Was the charge? Was it? It was. Murder. But there were cases, I think, where people were charged with uh, with murder. Um, in in maybe some of the cases where you know more than one person was infected. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other jurisdictions, it's it's more often manslaughter. So I think there was a necessity to reevaluate the 1998 decision. Uh, but again, whether they actually uh, got it right with the kinds of conditions that they're imposing. I'm not sure if the conditions go far enough, to be honest. But I think there is another concern, which is if you had kept it the way it was, there were cases, uh, it seemed to be a big problem, where people were purposefully not getting tested uh, because then they wouldn't have the burden to disclose if they didn't have, uh, if they, they didn't have tests uh, showing that they were HIV positive. So I think all of this got into that mix of considerations. And I, again, I'm not sure if maybe this went too far in the other direction. Uh, but I think what they did have in 1998 was probably causing uh, more harm than good. All right. So in other words, uh, we can't just uh, leave it up to the people pers- or if people are going to be socially irresponsible mm-hmm. or uh, they won't live up to some kind of a higher moral ideal. Uh, we need laws to conform or to be shaped uh, in order to what bring them uh, up above board uh, to encourage them to disclose. In other words, because they weren't even finding out what their status was just so they wouldn't be in this precarious position of needing to disclose, not wanting to disclose. That's kind of a, a curious way to apply the law, isn't it, Scott? I think it's a very funny way to apply the law. Um, but uh, I, I do think it has a particular lobby group behind it that's very powerful. It is predominantly the gay community that is afflicted by this illness, despite uh, there's been some objections to that. But the statistics demonstrate that that is the case. And there, I think part of the reason the legislation did come forward is precisely because this particular illness was being stigmatized. It was being singled out as being particularly dangerous. And, you know, uh, apparently there are groups that were saying, how come other uh, illnesses that are also damaging, harmful to others are not being similarly stigmatized? So this particular illness. So that was part of their objection to it. Well, it was to make the rules consistent, because as you say, now that the (laughs) medical advances have taken place, uh, there are STDs that are um, on a par as far as causing harm. Uh, if they, you know, if, if infection happens from one partner to another. So like the there was an idea that there was a kind yeah. of stigma. And just to your point about this being a gay lobby, I mean, most of the cases in my research, there aren't actually a lot of cases where people have been tried in the courts for sexual assault or aggravated assault um, on the grounds of, of causing HIV infection. Most of the high profile ones were actually men to women or women to men. It wasn't, it wasn't within the gay community. Um, so I'm not sure where if they you went can to, blame the gay court, lobby for this. Oh, well, I don't know. Well, yeah, this is where they went to court because uh, the one that was uh, quashed was a woman who had infected male partners and the other one uh, that I guess was upheld because the guy's been deported, but mm. it was with female partners. He didn't. Yeah. And then there was a story about, uh, what's his name, uh, Senyonga, I guess, uh, who also infected some women knowingly, and I believe he was charged with murder. But there, therein lies the... So you believe that this might have been the Supreme Court 
acceding to the wishes or will of the gay community or gay lobby. That's what you're saying, Scott Madison. Well, it, the, the issue itself had always the appearance of that to begin with. That was part of the objection, and I do think that there is, in general, in the in the legal landscape and the political landscape, a uh, move to accommodate that particular segment of the population. There is an identity politics, and it seems to be at least a motivation to hear this particular case. Why would they hear this case and not others? That's part of the Supreme Court's decision to begin with. Why are we going to hear this course and uh, case and not that case? Is there something that has changed here? Uh, to me, the ruling in yeah, 19- medical science. Well, right. If medical science is an issue that's going to change legal and political debates, then the abortion issue would be opened up. But we're not going to touch that, right? So there's there's a Fair complete enough. right yeah. and yeah, it is a point well made. Uh, you know, still with identity politics, then story that we covered late last week. Sherry DeNovo, the NDP MPP for Parkdale High Park, sponsored a bill, Bill 33, Toby's Act, the right to be free from discrimination and harassment because of gender identity or gender expression, and the way it's made itself uh, into our. Uh, Discussion this morning. The Toronto District School Board has a document out called TDSB Guidelines for the Accommodation of Transgender and Gender Nonconforming Students and Staff. And uh, it's just the pedestrian concern of washroom access. It says all students have a right to safe restroom facilities and the right to use a washroom that corresponds to the student's gender identity, regardless of the student's sex assigned at birth. Requiring students to prove their gender by having a doctor's note or identity documents is not acceptable. A student's self-identification is a sole measure of the student's gender, and they can use whichever washroom they deem to suit their identity. Uh, Scott Masson, I'll start with you again. Is there anything flawed with this thinking or this line of proposing gender equality for transgender student and staff? It's hard to know where to begin with such a bizarre uh, policy and such a bizarre mode of thinking that severs uh, sex from gender. Um, my other uh, hat that I wear is I'm a professor of English literature, and I do specialize in, in literary theory. Now, the, the literary theory that lies behind uh, the distinction between gender and sex has been growing in academia for the past uh, 50-odd years, and it's intensified to the point where people will say that there is no correlation between gender and sex. And such is the case here. They talked about sex assigned at birth. What does that mean? Well, how you're anatomically constructed or biologically, were you born male or female? Yeah, no, I understand that. But the word assigned at birth, you're mm. not assigned it. You're created that way. You're born that way. You're not assigned it. Nobody tells you this, and you're not, you can't overturn it. Um, the idea that our sexual identity is somehow a, a mental state uh, is part of the problem here. Uh, they have, when you when you inflict a policy that allows children to think of their gender in contradistinction to their sex, then you create all manner of confusion. I think it's a form of child abuse. The the TDSB's policy on this because it allows children to think of themselves in some other fashion than the one that they're um, biologically uh, determined to be. Now I realize there are cases that uh, of confusion there, but this propagates confusion. It promotes it, um, and it's on a practical level. I think it makes it impossible to enforce, and it opens up the possibility of rampant abuse. I'm, you know, I'm an, a male and I'm going to go into uh, the girl's washroom. Who is going to tell me that I'm not a predator? I mean, how am I going to distinguish the predator from somebody who's genuinely confused? I, I just think it's, it creates all <laughs> manner of... Somebody here is genuinely confused. 
Um, I well, think, I don't. You, you don't have to talk about yourself like that on the air, John. But I mean, <laughs> well, anyway. Justin, all right. So you, uh, you think? Well, you think Sherry DeNoble because I mean her explanation was that transgender kids uh, typically are bullied, uh, have a greater incidence of suicide. Absolutely. That's what's. That, uh, look, we can debate. Yeah, I don't think either of us are authorities on this, but we can debate. You know, the the six different genders and the difference between gender and and sex and all those interesting uh, debates that are happening in. Uh, social science and sexology, I guess it's called. But mm-hmm. t- to me, the the evidence is that transgendered people suffer higher levels of discrimination, uh, suffer bullying, uh, are more likely to suffer poverty. I mean, these are real issues. That's I mean, true. you can you can talk about uh, issues to do with who walks into washrooms, right? Uh, and I think we already have safeguards in place that protect people from pedophilia. Maybe those need to be strengthened. But that's a different conversation. The conversation here is how to protect transgender people. We have gay rights that's been enshrined in, in human rights legislation. Um, this is a very sensible expansion of those existing rights, and I think it makes eminent sense. It had it had all party endorsements. It lacks um, any sense, actually, and it's not sensible in any way, shape, or form. But uh, so, what do you do well, in a case with of little somebody- controversy and had high level endorsements from members of every party? Again, speak to my previous point about a powerful lobby and the way it dominates Canadian politics. All right, well, uh, let's then ask about that. Gender identity, uh, is that really identity politics playing itself out, this new idea that, uh, well, it's relatively new, the TDSB guidelines for the accommodation of transgender and gender nonconforming students and staff. Is there a need to accommodate such students, or is this just, again, something that's being full-throttled, being foisted? Uh, certainly within the school system, which is another issue, if it's uh, mm-hmm. you know kind of the gateway to... Uh, what do we call it? The normalization? It's the normalization. Sure it is. Uh, yeah. All right. Is it taking place in schools because identity politics are being promoted here uh, against the best interests interest of the overall society? And the uh, children. Yep. And the children might be the argument. Let's find out how the folks feel about it with Scott Mass and again, associate pastor at the Westminster Chapel in Toronto, and Justin Trache, spokesperson for the Canadian Secular Alliance. This is for the rare individual who is identified as trans and not just by themselves, um, that they be allowed to use the facilities that, yes, is theirs, um, which is if they identify as a woman, a woman's a, a man is a man's. And uh, again, very rare um, and always backed up with, uh, we hope, of course, some adult support. All right, well, that was Sherry DeNovo. She was talking about Toby's Law, or Toby's Act, uh, Bill 33, that she sponsored, and uh, I guess she said all three parties supported it for transgender folk to be able to self-identify which washroom they want to use. And the Toronto District School Board, in its current guidelines, allows for self-identity. And uh, we're discussing whether or not this is the right approach. Scott Masson shaking his head. Justin Trottier believes, <laughs> I guess, that you know it's necessary to implement something like that to protect the vulnerable who are particularly vulnerable given the stats and so on and so forth. But, uh, Scott, you believe that this is a symbol or a signal of something uh, larger at play in our society or in our culture. Yeah, we were talking about that in the break. I I think that it is the new norm is that there is no norm. Uh, The normative understanding of human sexuality and its proper uh, place for being exercised is within the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. That uh, norm has been erased and legislatively we're moving and bringing in different understandings, orientations, even the language has changed. Sexual orientation didn't exist uh, 15, 20 years ago as a description. Now it's uh, it's all the rage. Everyone talking about their orientation and again it is not only opposed to the understanding of the proper place of sexuality, it's against human biology. 
so that you can speak of gender as opposed to your sex. And to me, it propagates confusion. And I don't know how you can educate, teach right and wrong, truth and falsehood when there are no norms except what you think is right. I, I mean, mean why even bother going to school? Two after we accept the fact that transgender people exist, there are still norms. Pedophilia is wrong. Nobody's suggesting. Well, for has the ever moment it is. In the, for the moment, it's wrong. That, that's a that's a little bit uh, disrespectful. I no, think it's so. not because there are conferences. I don't, in, I don't in, hear in anybody America. fight. I don't hear uh, DeNovo or anybody fighting for this oh, particular no, no, piece she, of legislation. No, 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 of course or not. Or others in the gay community who are suggesting that it's a slippery slope. It's there in academia as we speak. There are conferences that promote it. If you accept the fact of the existence of gay people or transgender people or give them the same rights and protections everybody else currently enjoys. They have the rights and protections slope towards uh, bestiality and whatever other sins you imagine are likely to prevail. No, I'm, all I'm saying is that you either have a norm or there is no norm. Currently, there's no norm. If there's no norm, then what you call uh, beyond uh, the pale, namely bestiality or pedophilia, where would you, I mean, what would you point to that would say that this is absolutely wrong? There's nothing there. Well, what I'm more concerned about is people who are suffering. And I think that the well, evidence as a pastor, is in. I have the same concern, that there but there are, are ways of doing that. Not, not because they're confused, as you put it, but because the law doesn't provide them the respect and the opportunities yeah, and the same protections, look, Justin, and confuses laws, them by suggesting that their that their their biology is somehow corrupt or sinful. That's where the confusion their biology, comes it's from. Their gender, which has nothing to do with their biology. The point here is that. Uh, law has nothing to do with pastoral care for people. You don't promote laws or you don't bring in laws in order to protect people. People protect people. Laws won't do that. The law is an instrument for implementing something. Oh, but it you certainly sends a message. I mean, it's yeah, interesting that when sexual orientation was implemented into the human rights legislation and it became protected and it became something of interest to the Human Rights Commission in Ontario, you and I have certain... It's agreement on, on the Human Rights Commission's abuses. Yeah, it in this be abolished. particular case, I think that sexual orientation is and needs to be a protected. That's, that needs to be a protected group. When that was brought in, the cases that were brought to the Human Rights Commission actually dropped, partly because a signal was sent that Ontario was not going to accept that kind of abuse and discrimination. That well, does it, send a signal. This will send a signal, and that can help. It does send a signal. It sends the signal that nobody knows what anything's about, but there's a hush on free speech as a consequence. Uh, look, look, children uh, who were gay... Does free speech or have to do with anything in this particular debate? That's why the cases aren't being brought forward, is because, because uh, people aren't willing to talk about things anymore. There's no, there's no conversation that is Most of the cases had to do with people being removed... <laughs> In some cases, Scott, you're you know, saying there's with a very chill. little warning from their housing because they're gay. What does that have to do with free speech? Well, you're saying there's a chill if you uh, do raise a flag and you dispute that this is the new normal. That's uh, right. You get shut down or worse. All of right. course, because the ruling's in place and that's the way it is. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll come back. I'm going to take some calls. I beg your patience in advance. For those who've got a line, hang on. We'll come back, extend the segment with Scott Masson and Justin Trache. Culture War continues on The Oakley Show. Talk Radio AM 640. All right. We're back here with Scott Masson as the Associate Pastor at the <coughs> Westminster Chapel in Toronto. Justin Trache, spokesperson for the Canadian Secular Alliance. A lot of calls in this one, whether or not Toronto District School Board, uh, just following up with Bill 33, Toby's Act, the right to be free from discrimination and harassment because of gender identity or gender expression, making washrooms available to the kids depending on how they identify themselves. No other proof necessary, no documentation. It's all about the onus on the young people. And I'm curious if this is even an issue uh, that's got some 
practical uh, need. I mean, how many kids actually identify as transgender? Anybody have an idea? Justin, would you think that there'd be more than a handful or more than one or two? I mean, at, at what age does this manifest itself, by the way? Yeah, it's a small group. I mean, uh, I was looking up the statistics on sexual orientation generally, and gays and lesbians account for just a few percent. I thought it was higher. It's actually just three or four percent. Statistics can vary, but it's about that. Yeah. So transgender is, you know, somewhat let quite a bit less than that, I guess. But I don't, I wouldn't know exactly in a in an average school how many so, uh, or we, when they would sort of come out as as such. Well, I guess I'm 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 wondering in practical terms if this has uh, any real merit to be promoted, or is this more about politicizing something here, Scott Massey? I think it does. It just does the wrong thing. There are uh, those who actually do have a confused uh, gender identity, to use the phrase. Um, genuinely do. I think they have, they're very confused people. Justin was right at the outset when he spoke to this and the suicide rates, they're, they're nigh on 50%. Right. And these are genuinely tormented people. That is a pastoral problem. That is genuinely a problem that you need to deal with, but mm-hmm. you deal it on a, on a personal pastoral level. You don't bring in legislation to somehow publicly identify and all of this stuff that all of this, all that, that this does is as we talked earlier, it creates a new norm of sorts. And it encourages people and children really in the teenage years, their gender identity is sort of fluid. Human sexuality is very plastic in that sense. And and putting it out there is something that we're going to recognize. It, it does encourage children who are a bit confused to become more like that. And again, I think that's why I talked about the child abuse. It allows kids to get in the position where they're so tormented that there is no, when there's no norm and there's no real outlet for it, so, um, so you think this tormenting, this suicide, all that negative stuff, that's a product of this kind of legislation? I think this legislation, this legislation could lead to the being, rise being in transgender or yeah. transsexual There have been transgender people, unfortunately, committing suicide Already. long before there was right. legislation to, right. to deal with those problems. Right. And, and I'm not the question of the, the exact and absolute numbers of people who are transgendered. I, I, don't, I hardly think that's the, that's the concern. The, the numbers that are important to me, at least, and to people that advocate for this, are the percentages, as Scott said, that commit suicide, that are denied housing, that live in poverty. Uh, those are the percentages that matter. Um, well, we're not putting, have, a, lot of resor- we're not putting well. a lot of resources into this problem. To be fair, we're amending the human rights code in a sensible way. We already have sexual orientation protected. This, this yeah, is but just- now we're applying it in the schools at school level where, uh, you know, Karen's email says, uh, grade mm-hmm. three transgendered boy, I say if this is as common as this, uh, that so many young, young kids are truly having this problem nowadays, we need to pour money into an emergency study as to why our genes, our DNA, uh, or what uh, have or what have you have become so corrupted is her word. Let me take some calls on this. Robin Whitby, thanks for waiting. Go ahead, you're on the Oakley Show. Hey, good morning. Yeah, I just don't understand how schools ever got the mandate to tell our kids that they whatever gender they think they are, that's what they are. Hmm. I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense. I think it's wrong-headed. A gender identity disorder is a disorder. Yep. And, you know, and and these people that have it, they don't need a cheering section for the disorder. They need help. They need to have some kind of treatment. Well, yeah. that was Scott's point. Like That's my point. That's my point. Is the school, see, this is the point that Robin Whitby's making, Justin. School is not the place to social engineer around. It's not social engineering. School is the place to provide education about the facts of the world around you. Well, just as the sky is blue and atoms are composed of, you know, neutrons, protons, and electrons, and there are, are transgender people. That's a fact. No, it's not. Well, that's what we disagree on, but the science is pretty much in. There are gay people, and there, and that's a biological, no, natural it's not. thing. It's no, seen it's in the not. animal kingdom, for heaven's sake. Male and female There are transgender people. 
there are by people. So, I mean, you can't argue with those facts. Now, you can sexual say that orientation the is not legislation the same thing as, as sexual identity. So, you're male and female. The actual application of that is not a scientific fact. You, you can talk about how proactively bringing in teachers who who happen to represent certain demographic groups that maybe that goes too far, maybe that unfairly privileges one group over others. You know, I'm sympathetic to that kind of argument. But teaching children that it's okay if they feel these these inclinations or this, that this is their, this is who they are. That's just a fact, and it's as true as the facts of science and math, and that is the role of education, of public education. Let me go to Maria next. Facts. Hello, Maria. You're on the Oakley Show. I just want to tell Justin that education is to teach math and reading, and not to teach our children morally false. Uh, things that you are speaking of. You think um, education should include civics, should for example? Social engagement? You've been speaking the whole time. We should not address our kids in any, any way whatsoever in the way in which you're speaking. Every, everyone agrees with me. Our whole family, all of our friends are very concerned about the TDSB and the, where, it, the, the, where it's heading. Well, I agree. I agree with you. I agree with your concern about the TDSB and the way, where it's heading. I I do agree slightly with Justin that uh, education also includes uh, moral teaching and and civic teaching. However, um, it's just that this morality and this understanding of the body politic is not one that is cohesive to the public good. We were talking about that in the break. The public education system should be there to promote the public good. Well, I'd like to see evidence that teaching people that transgender people exist has created this moral confusion, that that it has even created more transgendered people, because there's no evidence of that either. That's because it hasn't yet happened. We're just bringing in the policy. The policy is new, but you don't believe that they haven't talked about the existence of transgender people in the public square or in public schools before. Sure they have. Really? I can't remember it in my, All right, t- but, my but classes. But you would promote but- that, Justin. You think that that's part of a civics course, as it were. You were making that reference. Well, for example, demographics is part of a civics course, teaching children that there are X percentage of um, blacks, whites, Hispanics, etc. within our society. That's nothing to it's, do with it's civics. It's the same kind of fact when you're talking about demographics of sexual orientation. All I right. don't see the difference. I, I can see we're, uh, we're at loggerheads on this, so I'll end on this question because uh, uh, we'll have to move along. But uh, there's a story out of Ottawa where the conservative government, uh, I guess under austerity measures, have decided only Christian chaplains would be ministering to the inmates in federal penitentiaries. And Bob Ray in high dudgeon, along with Thomas Mulcair, suggesting that this is a breach of the charter right, freedom of religion and expression. Is Bob Ray or Thomas Mulcair right about that? Or uh, do you think there's a, a case to be made for only Christian chaplains and the others to, uh, I guess, minister to Buddhists and Jews would have to do so on a volunteer basis. I dispute the premise that either of them can ever be right, but um, <laughs> on this particular issue, no, I think not. Uh, look, they cut 49 part-time chaplains, 18 of whom represented non-Christian faiths. In other words, two-thirds of the chaplains part-time that they cut were Christians. Um, so I don't really see the issue there. But they this kept is, all the full-time Christians and cut every single staff person who's non-Christian. They cut all of the part-time chaplains in order to save money. The case could be made that they ought not to be paying chaplains at all the public I would make that case. Okay, or just hire them part-time so that you can have a mix of different religious chaplains. Well, Look, I, there are so many different options that they had to spend the same amount of money to save the measly $1.3 that they're saving and still give proportional services. Of course, there's going to be more Christian chaplains or more hours of Christian chaplaincy service than Muslims because there are more Christian 
inmates than Muslims. No, there but, aren't. <laughs> the Muslim, Muslim in, inmates are rising by the day, and there's a radicalization uh, in the prisons. Check my date. I'm quite sure there are more Christians in right, prison because than there are more. There, be, well, anyway, there are also 2,500 volunteers who provide religious services. They're volunteers, and they're still allowed to do it. There's nothing to do with freedom of religion. And who are the volunteers? I think you would find that the overwhelming majority, if not almost the exclusive. Uh, uh, composition of these volunteers would be Christians. Uh, so if you really want to cut the funding for it, then you could do so. But the, the mm-hmm. reality is that the Christian faith has a particular calling to the poor and the marginalized, the prisoners, and therefore Christians well, have gone Well, certainly when you pay them to make a profession out of providing those services say, and don't the, provide the, the, the same financial incentives The funding issue is, to me, a, a separate issue. If you want to members of other religions, you're going to get more Christian chaplains who are willing Christians to will step go up there and whether go whether it's funded prison. or not. If you want to defund it, defund it. As will it. members of other religions, but that's hardly the point. The no, point is that there were all of these different options for spending the same amount of money or cutting the same amount of money and still keeping, as I, as I put it, um, a measure of support for non-Christian uh, So, Justin, you see it as religious discrimination. There's less of them. You think the Harper government's promoting it's a favoritism. form of religious... All right, well, yeah. there you go. We'll leave it at that. Obviously, the two uh, did not agree, which makes it a great day for talk radio. Scott Mass, an associate mm-hmm. pastor at the Westminster Chapel in Toronto, Justin Trache, spokesperson for the Canadian Secular Alliance. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.